Um, before I get started, I, I want you to know that I consider doing this to be a, such an honor and privilege. I just feel, I feel so blessed. Uh, I, love, I love doing this. I have fun doing it. I have fun digging into this stuff. And, uh, and, and just to be part of this ministry. Um, part of what's getting me to think this. <laughs> no. love you, I love you. I love you. No, but um, I had a, a lot of uh, parishioners this weekend. Have any parishioners in the service right now? Raise your hand if you're from out of state. Yeah, I got a couple around this place. All right. Uh, well, and, and just the testimonies that I'm hearing about, you know, people whose their faith was shipwrecked. I had two different people uh, last service. Their faith was shipwrecked, and then they got on the podcasting, and, and it just says put their thing back together. And it's just, I feel really blessed to be part of this that's making such a difference, and I hope you feel the same. Because um, it is, it's, we're, we're all blessed to be here. And, and uh, so thanks for letting me preach, all right? Ready to hear it again? Okay, so I, um, I've shared this before, and people are always surprised to hear it, but I was a strange kid. I, I was just, I, went, I know, it's hard to believe, but I, I look back on it, and I just was really peculiar. Um, didn't realize at the time, but now I realize it. I had a real active, overactive imagination. And maybe that was a coping mechanism for my hard family circumstances, sort of my escape valve, I don't know. But I, I, my imagination was always very, very active, and it led to some odd behaviors and weird things. Uh, I've told you before about how I used to play with a stick and string. My favorite thing in the world for a number of years was to get alone with a stick and string and run around the room, skip around the room, making noises, and I would be telling a story in my head, and then I would illustrate with a stick and string, and I, all just in my own little world. And uh, I didn't know it. I found out later on that my mom had wanted me to see a psychiatrist. Uh, but my dad said, no, he's just a imaginative, an imaginative weird kid. Uh, and so he let me go. But uh, yeah, it was, it was just strange. For a period of time, I, I would go around, and, and I was raised in this Catholic environment, and I, I, I wanted to be a priest for a period of time. So glad that one didn't pan out. <laughs> but uh, I, I would dress up as a priest, and I have this, like, make a, a cardboard collar to make it look like a clerk's collar, you know. And I had this uh, black choir uh, outfit that I wear that looked kind of like a, a, a priest's robe. And I would go door to door, and I had these, I had these wafers, like these little sugar wafers. I, I don't know if they even have those anymore. But when they'd answer, I'd go like this, the body of Christ. <laughs> and some of them, I mean, usually I'd just get a kind of a cute smile, and they'd say, no, thank you. Uh, once in a while, the people would know what to do, and, and they, they'd say, somebody would hold up their hand, and I'd say, oh, no, no, I have to put it on your tongue, because <laughs> in Catholic Church, only the priest can touch that, that, that host, and so, it, and some of them would bow down like this, and I'd put it on their tongue, and, and uh, one lady actually knelt when she took it, I remember that, it's like, oh, this feels so legitimate, um, it's probably sacrilege now that I think back on it, oh, and, and when I would give them the host, I would mumble something. Because in those days, back in the college, they, they, they did the Mass in Latin. And I didn't know Latin, but I thought I sounded, I, I wanted to fake it as good as possible. So I'd go like, like, e pluribus unum, Santa Maria, Mamma Mia, or something, and give them a thing. It's just, I never see kids doing that. So it occurs to me that that probably wasn't all that normal. I, I, and I wonder what the people thought at the time. Like, oh, here comes that special needs child or something. You know, he's going to be... I, I, I was, I think I, I, I just, I just, and I had a lot of weird ideas, and I don't know where I got them from, like, there's one time where I, 
was out in the second grade, and I pushed this girl over because I liked her. <laughs> and, and that was how you show it in second grade, or at least I, that's what I thought. And we were all roughhousing. But she fell down, and her feet went up in the air, and I saw her underwear. And for some reason, I don't know where I got this idea, but I was absolutely certain of it, that this meant I had to marry her. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a rule, there's a rule in the universe. If you see a girl's underwear, you got to marry her. I have no idea where I got that from, but I immediately went over and I said, okay, when we grow up, um, will you marry me? <laughs> and she said, yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Another thing I'm glad didn't work out, but uh, it was just, it, it, it just, uh, and for two years, second, third grade, um, uh, everyone knew that we were going to get married when we got older. It was, her name was Teresa, a real, real sweet girl. Um, and, and probably the weirdest thing I did, it doesn't get weirder, but I, I, I thought I was Superboy for a period of time. I gave that up when I was 18, but I, no. I, I really thought, I, I didn't pretend like I was Superboy. That would have been normal. I, I thought I was Superboy. And, and I made my own Superboy outfit. Uh, I got an old t-shirt, and I, I, I didn't know anything about dying clothes back then, so I just colored with a crayon, a big S on it, you know, and a symbol around it. And the shirt wasn't blue, but, you know, it will do. I didn't want to get one of those store-bought ones because everyone has those, and those are fakes. So this was the authentic one. And then I had a, a part of a bed sheet that mom let me cut a cape out of, and I went through three red crayons making that thing red, you know? And then I would put it on, and I would, uh, uh, like, connect it with a clothespin. Uh, and I wore that thing under my clothes most of the time for about two years. Uh, second, third grade. I, I go to Catholic school with a uniform, but underneath I had my Superman costume on because... <laughs> You never know when the bad guys are going to break in and start to hassle the cute little girls, and I want to be able there to, be, to rescue them uh, so they'll adore me the way they adored Elvis Presley. That was the goal of the whole thing. I would sometimes think about that, and I'd even be singing to myself, Viva Las Vegas, as I'd be, I'm beating up the bad guys, Viva Las Vegas, oh, I've got a huck, huck of burning love. And, and, yeah, so, and even though I was betrothed to Teresa, I, I thought it's okay to have girls adore you up until the time you get married, and so uh, that, that, that's how I justified that one. So it just, you know, I, and I never told anyone about my secret identity other than Teresa because she had a right to know because we're going to get married. And I remember the time I revealed it to her. It's third grade. We're at a bus stop and waiting for the bus. And, and I just decided to go over and whisper it in her ear, I'm Superboy. For real. I'm Superboy. And, and, and she goes, cool. And then I showed her the proof. I unbuttoned my shirt. The S. This is, this is the proof that I am Superboy. And she just smiled and went, wow, wow. And a couple of times that year, she actually asked me, hey, are you wearing your Superboy outfit? And, and I, I assumed it was because she wanted to feel safe. Uh, and I, I assured her that, yes, I've got it on. Because you can't do superpowers unless you've got the outfit on. So those are the rules. And uh, there's one problem with this whole thing, though, and that is that I couldn't fly. I tried. I tried. But I, 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 I couldn't do it. And... So how do you reconcile this? I know I'm Superboy, and yet, and yet I can't fly. And I came up with a theory, and that is that, that I, don't, I don't yet have enough faith that I can fly. If I really, 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 really believe I'm Superboy and can fly, then, then I'll be able to fly. And I even tested this hypothesis a few times. I get up on like a, this, this fence, this brick thing. Uh, it was like a, on the edge of a sidewalk where I lived. And I would jump as far as I could, at, at believing I was Superboy. And, and I, 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 I could prove it. The more I believed it, the farther I could jump. See, I'm getting there.
But there came one night where I had to really prove it. And, and um, so I was, I was laying in bed, and I hadn't fallen asleep yet. Everyone else was asleep. But I heard a siren outside, which is an ambulance or a policeman, but probably some cute little girl's in trouble. So this is a job for Superboy. And so I got out of bed and, and took out my pajamas and put on my cape and put on my shirt and um, my underwear. And I went outside. Uh, and this time, this time it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. I, I'm Superboy. There's a girl in need of rescue. And so I said to myself three times, I'm Superboy, I'm Superboy, I'm Superboy. And then I started to run. I said, up, up, and away. And I jumped. <laughs> Flat on my face. And that was all the time that I realized that I'm not Superboy. I'm just pretending to be. And I don't have superpowers. And I can't fly. And probably the girls are never going to be adoring me. I'm just a non-superpower, ordinary Greg Boyd. But hey, I got one girl to adore me, and that's all I need. All right, so there, there you go. Uh, now, here's why I share all that. There are a lot of people, Christian and also some New Agers, who have a model of faith, an understanding of faith, that basically says that I, I was right. Uh, they believe that um, if you just believe something strongly enough, it will be so. On the New Age side of things, uh, this was found like in the book, The Secret, that came out in 2006, and I think they made a movie out of it or something. But uh, the idea there is that, that external reality is just a reflection of your mind, and you actually can control that if you just have faith. The secret is to, is to, to, to just firmly believe that that car will be yours, or this rich, these riches, or, or you'll be healed, or whatever. And, and so if you believe it's strong enough, it'll be yours. On the Christian side of things, uh, this is known as sort of word faith Christianity or positive confession, it's sometimes called. Um, or sometimes it's name it and claim it or blab it and grab it. It goes by a lot of different names. But um, uh, their idea is that if you, really, if you really, really, really believe that you're going to be healed, then you will be healed. And if you believe you're going to be rich, you will be rich. If you, if you really believe you're going to get that Lamborghini, then you'll get the Lamborghini. Um, and and um, yeah, so they have that in common. Now, both the Christian and the New Age group uh, base that understanding to a certain degree, in fact, to a large degree, on one passage. And it's the passage we're going to look at here this morning. Uh, and and uh, um, it's found in Mark 11. This is our loose end scripture of the day. Mark 11, uh, verses 23 and 24. It says this. Here's Jesus saying, Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea... And if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. There you have it. So basically, I had the right idea in third grade. If I just believe strong enough, I, then I'll be able to fly. And this, this is what the, the, this teaching says. And it looks like it's justified based on that verse. Isn't that what Jesus says? So right at this time, you should be thinking, well, how is he going to explain this one? I'll get to this in a few minutes. We'll get to Mark 4. But first, I want to like unpack it a little bit, point out some unusual things about it, and then we'll come back to it towards the end. Here's the thing is that this teaching is actually very dangerous. Because what happens is if your conviction is that if you believe that you'll be healed strong enough, then you will be healed. Well, then if you're not healed, it means it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. Or maybe there's some hidden sin in your life, something. Um, it, you end up blaming the victim in this, with this philosophy. And I have, over the course of the years I've been in ministry, seen dozens of train wrecks as a result of this. 
Uh, and it's just so tragic. Uh, you know, a mother blames herself because her child died because she didn't have enough faith. Uh, or I knew another lady who blamed herself because her baby was born deformed because she didn't have enough faith. Uh, I knew a lady who, who blamed herself because her husband got electrocuted on the job because if she would have had enough faith, that, that, that wouldn't have happened. Um, I knew a lady who blamed herself because she was dying of cancer because if she had faith, she wouldn't be dying of, of this. I knew a guy who blamed himself for having lost this business because he just had, wasn't having, having enough faith. Um, you know, I knew a couple that, that, that blamed themselves because their child walked away from God because they didn't have enough faith. So they thought, I, I met a guy, a 19-year-old kid who had this freak rugby accident, and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And he thought it was because he lacks faith. And he kept on telling me that if, if, as soon as I get up enough faith, I'm going to get up off of this bed, and my arms and legs will be totally healthy. And just would not accept his condition because of this teaching. You end up blaming the victim. It's, uh, it, it's not an innocuous faith. It's, 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 a, it's a dangerous thing. It's a magical kind of faith. Magic happens whenever we reduce the complexity of reality down to one formula. If you got this formula, then you're guaranteed to have this outcome. It's magical, and it, it can be absolutely disastrous. There's some things that are odd about this, this understanding of faith as well. Like if you take Mark 11 literally, you have to believe, when you pray, believe that you have received what you're asking for, and it will be given to you. You know, there's a problem with that. The problem is, is this, that if, if I am believing that I've already received uh, what I'm praying about, well, then I won't be praying about it. I've already received it. Praying about it presupposes that I haven't yet received it. And yet Jesus says it will be given to you. Well, wait a minute, you told, we're, we're, we're to believe that we have received it, and yet you're promising that it will be given to us, which presupposes that we haven't yet received it. How does this work? It's self-contradictory. It's self-refuting. The very process of asking presupposes that you haven't received it. So you can't do both at the same time. So maybe you might think, okay, then maybe Jesus means after the first prayer, then believe that you received it. Though that's not what he says. He says as you pray. But, but let's go with that. Well, it, it means you'll never ask for anything twice. It would be a lack of faith to ask for something twice because after the first time, you're supposed to believe that you've already received it. So stick with that. But that's odd because Jesus tells us several times to pray with persistence. They keep, on, keep at it. For example, he tells this parable in Luke 18 about this widow who wants to get her case heard. She wants justice done. And the judge in town, however, is a bad man. He doesn't, he doesn't fear God, and he doesn't care about justice. But she goes to his house and starts nagging him, and, and nags him, 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 until finally this guy says, uh, well, I, even though I don't, care, I don't fear God and I don't care about justice, I'm going to hear this lady's case and give her justice just to get her off my back. And Jesus isn't telling this parable to show us what God is like at all, but he's, showing, he's telling this parable to show us what we're to be like. And what we're to be like is this widow. In fact, he holds her up as a model of faith. Uh, faith is a faith that perseveres. You, you keep at things. Um, now, so here's the thing. You can't persevere unless you are acknowledging that you haven't yet received what you're persevering about. If this widow was trying to convince herself that she already had received justice, she wouldn't be knocking at his door. So here the model of faith is, you acknowledge that you haven't yet received it, and you keep on pressing in, which is the opposite of what we get in Mark 11, if we're going to take that literally. We have to believe that we've already received it. As a matter of fact, this passage, the literal interpretation of it, it just conflicts with massive amounts of Scripture all over the place. I'll just give a few examples of this. Um, in Mark 8, we're, uh, we have this passage where there's this guy who apparently got his, he, he didn't have eyes, he just had eye sockets. Uh, they must have got gouged out or something. Um, and so Jesus comes to him, and it's 
an odd thing he does. He puts mud in there, uh, I guess to recreate eyes. And they prays for him. And then, asked, and then he asks the guy, well, can you see now? Which I, 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 and the guy says, well, yeah, kind of, sort of, maybe uh, I see people walking around kind of like tree stumps. Uh, in other words, it's all blurry. So then Jesus prays for him again, which I find encouraging because even the Son of God had to persevere at things that didn't always come automatic for him either, even though we're not told why. Uh, and there's a lot of variables that affect what comes to the past. But Jesus had to pray again, and this time the, the guy gets healed. But think about this. If the literal interpretation of what Jesus said in Mark 11 is correct, then Jesus never should have asked that guy, can you see? Uh, say, can you see? Well, that would be a lack of faith, because you're supposed to be believing that you've already received it. What Jesus should have said to the guy is, now that I've prayed for you, you've got to claim this, you've got to stand on this, believe that you have received it, and start acting on that faith. And the story would have gone, I think, quite differently, because the guy who can only see with blurs, he would have stood up and started confessing that he can see, he can see, he's got 20-20 vision. Meanwhile, he's stumbling over things and knocking over people, bumping into everyone, everyone's getting mad at him, runs into a guy carrying fish to the market, tips over his fish cart, then slips on the fish and bumps his head, cracks his head open, and now Jesus has to not only heal his eyes fully, he's got to heal his head and spend the rest of the day picking up fish for this guy because he doesn't want his family to go hungry, cleaning him off to get to the market, when there's thousands of people he could have been healing instead, all because Jesus said, act like you already have what you were asking for. See, when you, here's the thing. When you, whenever you pit your faith against reality, um, well, just don't do that. It leads to goofy, goofy things. It, it's, it's not, God, God's into reality, not into make-believe. If you know something's not real, don't pretend like it's real. Uh, it, it, deal with reality. Um, screwy things happen. I, I, that story reminds me of this guy I met in seminary. And this guy was almost... He was le almost legally blind. He had these thick glasses, the kind of glasses that are so thick that when you look at him, his eyes look bigger. So he was like, really? And, and uh, he told me that when he was in college, he fell into the word faith crowd, the name and claim it crowd, and he started going to this church, and they convinced him on the basis of Mark 11 that if he would just pray and believe that he had received healing for his eyes, then his eyes will be healed. Now, if you really believe that you have received healing, you don't have glasses anymore. Wearing glasses means you don't really believe that you've already received it. So as a sign of faith, get rid of your glasses. And so for four months, this guy tells me, he, in college, went around like this Mr. Magoo on steroids. He was just knocking over everything, bumping into people. And not, sometimes, he said, sometimes he knocked people over. One time it was an old lady. Another time it was this guy who then punched him in the face for it. Uh, he, he couldn't see where he was going. He got lost all the time. Almost flunked out of college because uh, uh, he, he had been a straight-A student, but, but it's really hard to succeed in college if you can't read the book and if you can't see the questions on the, the test. So almost all the while, he's claiming to everybody, oh, I've been healed, I've been healed, hallelujah. Got into four car wrecks uh, in this period of four months. The last one kind of seriously because injured this, this other guy and him. Plus, he had injured his wrist and his knee from falling over things so much. But he gets in this car wreck, and so they have to bring him to the hospital. And he ends up in the psych ward because they, they, he keeps telling people they can see 20-20 vision. They test his eyes, and he's almost legally blind. And people who do that are cuckoo. That's not a sign of faith. That's a sign of cuckoo-ness. Never, never, never try to believe things that you know very well are not real. It leads to all sorts of goofy things. So to, to get, a, to get a, a balanced understanding of prayer, you can't just focus on one verse. You've got to look at the whole Bible, right? And, and, and just look at everything that, that, that it says about prayer and interpret every particular passage in light of the whole. 
If you focus on any one passage, you're going to get screwed up. Uh, especially if you're making Mark 11 your formula for how prayer is supposed to work. So here's a, a sampling of the kind of things the Bible says about prayer that qualify and that force us to reinterpret Mark 11. So for example, Jesus uh, several times says, where two or three or you are gathered together in my name, ask anything that you want and it will be given to you. Two or three. Uh, so apparently the number of people praying affects the outcome of prayer. The more people you have joining in on this, there's more authority there, more power there. Now, how does that fit with Mark 11? Because in Mark 11, it says you individually. If you individually believe it will be so, it will be so. How could adding a person or two or ten possibly change anything? It just it doesn't comport. Uh, Jesus says pray with persistence. I, sh I said it a little bit earlier. But how that doesn't comport with, with uh, a literal interpretation of Mark 11. Because you wouldn't be praying persistently if, you, if you're busy trying to claim that you've already received it. Sometimes we find some passages where Jesus' faith is enough to heal a person without any consideration of their faith. For example, when he raises people from the dead. They don't participate at all. So sometimes Jesus' faith is sufficient. Other times, however, it's the people that Jesus is, is, is praying for, that he's ministering to. Their faith is what heals them. And there's a few instances where Jesus couldn't do many miracles because of people's unbelief. And so the takeaway from that is that the faith of the person who's praying for another as well as the faith of the person who's being prayed for, they both factor into uh, what happens as a result of prayer. But you don't find any of that in, in uh, Mark 11, a literal interpretation of Mark 11 alone. Now you've got to take the whole counsel of Scripture. Sometimes Jesus says, you've got to pray in my name and it will be done for you. And then there's, there's uh, in the New Testament, the teaching that you have to pray according to God's will, which is a pretty important qualification. Because it means that... that, that uh, prayer isn't some sort of, you know, gimme, gimme, grab, bag, turn God into a slot machine sort of a thing. Uh, no, it, it's, it's there for kingdom purposes. Uh, it's there for the bride of Christ to uh, align herself with the will of God to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. But you don't find anything about in accordance with God's will in, in Mark 11. It just says, whatever you want. And in fact, you don't find that qualification in any of these other passages. But you have to now interpret all those other passages in light of this, that it's got to be done in accordance with God's will. And then you have passages where, where, where uh, prayer is understood to be a form of spiritual warfare, because it is a form, form of spiritual warfare. And so we learn that, that, that the, the, the strength of the demonic forces that oppose you can adversely affect the outcome of prayer. That's why his disciples could cast demons out all over the place. Uh, but when it came to this little kid who had this strong demon in him, they weren't able to cast the demon out. And Jesus said, well, that kind, that kind only comes out through a lot of prayer and fasting. Like, that's a tough thing. You know, so you got to... So, so that has something to do with it. This, the, the number of demonic forces you're up against also has something to do with it, which is why Jesus could uh, normally cast, instantly cast demons out of, out, of, out of people who had individual demons, but when he comes upon this, this guy who's got a legion of demons in him, well, that takes longer. The demons actually kind of argue back, and they, they don't immediately come out. So the bottom line, folks, is that there's a lot of things that affect the outcome of, of, of prayer, the number of people praying, the faith of the person praying, the faith of the person being prayed for, the strength of the demonic forces against you, the numbers of the demonic forces against you, praying in Jesus' name, praying according to God's will, a number of things, and I haven't even talked about what I talked about last week, which is that every decision ever made by every, any, every person who's ever existed and every angel that has ever existed causes ripple effects throughout time that affects what comes to pass, including what comes to pass as a result of prayer. Which is why we can never know with any kind of certainty why this prayer had this outcome and that prayer had that outcome. It's just, it's, just, it's just too complex. But the last thing we should ever do 
Given the complexity of the world and given the whole scope of what Scripture says about prayer, the last thing we should ever do is focus on one verse and turn it into a formula. Uh, that, folks, is magic. Magic is whenever you reduce the complexity of the world down to one formula. As though, as long as you have this formula, every other variable that affects what comes to pass just disappears. It doesn't work like that. So we have to look at Mark, or, or Mark 11 in light of the whole teaching of Scripture. I, I want to give one more verse before we turn to uh, Mark 11 itself. Uh, we return to it to explain it. And this verse here is an important one. It's, it's the verse that it discloses the most about how we actually should do faith. Um, if you've been here for a year and a half or longer, uh, this may be a review, because I just taught on this about a year ago. But this is an important review, so don't check out, because this is an important one. Here's what it says in Hebrews. Now, uh, someone told me uh, last night that the Hebrews is a book about guys who like to brew beer. He brews. Ha <laughs> I'd never heard that before. I guess it's an old-time Christian joke. He brews. It could be a book about how guys like to make coffee, but I doubt it. So, it says this. Now, some of you have this memorized a bit. Now, faith is the, this is the Darby translation, which on this verse is, I think, the best. Now, because it's the most literal. Now, faith is the substantiating. The word there is hypostasis. Everyone say hypostasis. <laughs> of things hoped for. And the conviction, elenkos. Of things not seen. What the author is doing here, and the rest of this chapter illustrates this, is he's saying... Faith is where you see as a substantial, by faith you make as a substantial reality that which you hope for or that which you anticipate, what you believe is God's will. It's about a vision, a mental vision. Of, and it's concrete and it's vivid, it's lifelike. You're, you're, you're making this hope substantiated in your brain. Hypostasis. That's what the word means. It's a substance, solidity. And see, as you, are, as you anticipate that and see it as a mental vision, that creates in you an alleged cost that it will be so. And that motivates you now to move in a certain direction. That's the essence of faith, is moving in a certain direction based on the, the vision that you have for the future that God wills, which creates this alleged cost that it will be so. Now, we actually do this all the time. Faith isn't a religious thing. It's a human thing. We all, everything we do, we're, we're doing it on the basis of some, some faith, which means we're doing it on the basis of some vision we have about a future that we, that we anticipate that creates a, an alleged cost, a conviction that it will be so. So, for example... Let's say that you're tired of your kitchen or something's broken in your kitchen or for whatever reason, you want to renovate your kitchen. Well, if you're a normal person, I don't have this because uh, I don't think about design. I, I, that doesn't work for me. But, but, but like my wife, she, she had a vision of, of like how the kitchen should go. And, and the, the, the refrigerator should go here and the stove over here and the sink over here and da-da-da-da. And what colors should we have? At least a rough idea of the colors that she would have. And see, so that vision then creates in her a desire for it to be so. Like, like, yes, that's, that's what we want. And, 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 see, and that will motivate me to renovate the kitchen. Not. I, I don't renovate kitchens. Uh, it, it motivates me to hire somebody to come and renovate the kitchen. Because I can't hit a nail with a hammer if my life depends on it. But, uh, but that's how faith works. We do it all the time. I was watching the Olympics in uh, 2016. Maybe some of you saw this. And, and I was watching the, the, the girls' floor routine for gymnastics. And every one of them, as they're waiting there in the corner, getting ready to do the routine, you see their body twitching, and they have a really intense look on their face, and, and they're like, they're, 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 and you can tell that what they're doing is previewing their routine. And there's actually now a whole field of sports science that, that backs this up, because um, they've discovered the power of concrete, imaginative, vivid uh, previewing of the activity that you're going to do. And what those girls are doing, they're not just trying to remember what comes next. They're way beyond that. 
they're envisioning themselves landing this routine with a perfect hand. And they're doing it vividly, as lifelike as possible. And see, as they, as they preview that routine, it creates in them the conviction and the confidence that it will happen. And that's what motivates them to get out there on the floor and, and do the routine. Now, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to get a perfect 10. In fact, that rarely happens. And it doesn't guarantee that because there's a lot of variables that factor into how they do in any given moment. But see, if it wasn't for them having faith, they wouldn't be out there in the first place. Faith is what gets them out there. So faith doesn't guarantee you that what you hope for, you're going to get it all. But without faith, what is certain is that you won't get any of what you hope for. And faith is this mental vision, concrete vision, that creates this conviction that it will be so. It doesn't guarantee anything. In fact, in Hebrews 11, which is the Hall of Fame of Faith, it's been called that, these are heroes of the faith, most of the people that are listed there don't get what they were having faith for. And yet they're held up as heroes of the faith. None of them say, oh, I, 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 I believe I've already received the promises of God. None of them say that. No, they... Here's what it says, starting with verse 13. All of these died in faith without having received the promises. But from a distance they saw and greeted them, or welcomed them, embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on this earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So these folks, rather than claiming that they had already received the promises, which a literal interpretation of Mark 11 would have you do, uh, they're held up as, as, as heroes of faith precisely because they didn't receive what they were hoping for. But what they had was a vision. They, they, they saw in a distance and welcomed in a, from a distance the promises of God. Now, he's not talking about a physical seeing or a physical distance here. Because the homeland that they're looking for was not of this world. Uh, he's talking about a mental vision that these people have. And so in obedience to God, they envision the future that, that is God's will. And they move in that direction. That's what faith is all about. Getting a vision that creates motivation to move in a certain direction. The way, the way it works for me, like when I'm praying for somebody uh, for healing, is when I'm praying for somebody to be, to be healed, I envision them being healed. Uh, that's the future I hope for. That's the future I believe to be, be God's will. Because based on the pattern of Jesus, I assume, unless God tells me otherwise, that it is his will to heal. There are exceptions, but gen my default is they're supposed to be healed. So I envision that. And then praying, I'm pushing in that direction. Lord, bring about this healing. And I can see the person getting out of the, the wheelchair. Or I see them, the relief on their face when they get rid of that, that, that migraine. Or, or whatever it is that I'm praying about. And I envision that as concretely as possible. And that creates in me a sense of, yes, oh, I would love to see that. And, and that energy is then what motivates me to keep pushing in that direction. And I encourage you to have the same. That's, that's the essence of what faith is, is, is all about. Do I know the person's going to be healed? No. I know they eventually be healed, but, but how can I know that? There's so many variables that factor into the outcome of prayer, including every decision ever made by a human or an angel throughout the history of the world and the ripple effects it causes. And I can't know that. But I don't need to know that in order to have faith. In fact, it's faith precisely because you don't know that. And so you just press. I, I know it's not just about God's will or my faith or their faith. There's a lot of other variables. Uh, but, but faith is, is the action of pushing in a certain direction. And I do know this. Based on James 5, verse 16, that, that prayer is powerful and effective. And so whether I can see the effect or not, I just take it on faith that I've left this situation more kingdomized than it was before. I, the, 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 I've, I've pushed in a kingdom direction. Uh, the situation is a little more 
closer to the kingdom than it was before. And so never think that because you prayed for somebody and you didn't see them healed or the situation didn't change, never think that that was wasted prayer. Never, no. Every prayer counts. Every prayer matters. You're, you're, you're bringing about a little more of the kingdom down here on earth, the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, there's no such thing as a wasted prayer. Okay, so with all that in mind, and with seven minutes to go, Lord, help me here. Uh, uh, let's look at uh, uh, Mark 11 one more time. Truly I tell you, if you say this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, so, what do we do with that? Um, I'll say two things here. Number one, uh, when Jesus says, say this mountain, be removed into the sea, uh, it's important to know that he didn't originate that teaching. If you think about it, it's kind of weird. It, it, like, why a mountain? Like, are a lot of people craving the, the, to move mountains? Is that like a common need out there? Uh, why does he use a mountain? Wouldn't it been, I, it'd be more helpful to start with a rock, maybe. <laughs> say this rock, move. Uh, that'd be challenging enough. Why a mountain? It's kind of strange. And why have we never heard of anyone doing this? I mean, if this is a teaching that we're supposed to be, like what faith is about, you think that someone in the history of, of the world since Jesus would have had the faith to move mountains, and if they had, I bet we would have heard about it. I mean, that's kind of a big event, don't you think? <laughs> Newsflash. Some person of faith just moved Mount Everest. The locals are really ticked off because the tourist industry is slaughtered. Now, you'd hear about that. Why? Now, here's the thing. Jesus didn't originate this teaching. Uh, it actually turns out it was a common expression in first century Judaism and after that. Uh, as a way of expressing the power of faith, they would say faith can move mountains. Uh, you can say to this mountain, get removed from the sea, and it will happen. Um, but no one took that literally. Everybody knew that this was hyperbole. Which is why no one actually tried to do it. it, was, it was, which is common in Semitic languages. It's an exaggerated statement. It, you, you overstate something to an absurd degree in order to emphasize, to, to, to emphasize it. So in, in first century, if they saw like, an answer to a prayer, they would say, man, faith can move mountains. Uh, or if they just wanted to celebrate the power of faith, they would teach about how you can say to this mountain be removed. But no one took it literally. It's hyperbole. It's hyperbole. Which is important because that means since Jesus is talking about this expression, this common expression, that we should take this all as hyperbole and not interpret it literally. So then Jesus adds to this common phrase, faith-moving mountain stuff, he adds to that his own commentary and extends the hyperbole. And that's where he says, if you, when you pray, uh, uh, believe that you have received it and it will be done. It's a hyperbolic expression. Now, in all hyperbole, there's this quality of, like, it's almost as if. There's an almost as if quality to all hyperbole. It's, faith is so strong, it's almost as if you could say to this mountain, be removed, and it would be removed. And so here Jesus is saying, when you pray, believe almost as if you'd already received it, and it will be done to you. And even that, it will be done to you, is stated in an unqualified way because he's giving a hyperbole here. But it's almost, pray and believe almost as if it had already been given to you. Or, or think about it as though it had already been given to you. Or imagine it as though it had already been given to you. See, if you interpret this passage literally, it makes it self-contradictory and it contradicts a ton of scripture. And it's magic. But if you understand it as hyperbole, it makes perfect sense. Because I hope some of you have already noticed that when you interpret it as hyperbole, it's almost as if, imagine it as though it had already happened. 
He's basically saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. Look at it one more time. Faith is the substantiating of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, Jesus is saying, when you pray, have faith. See this as though it had already happened, which is exactly what I do when I pray for people to be healed. I see them. I see the results that I believe is God, are God's will and that I want to be pushing towards. So when we pray, see it as vividly as possible. Whatever it is that you're hoping for, uh, as lifelike as possible, and let it develop in you the conviction that will be so, which motivates you to keep pushing in that direction. So read, I think, interpreted in the whole, the whole scripture in its first century context, Mark 11 is not a magical formula that's self-contradictory. It's just a hyperbolic expression of the power of faith. And faith is about what we're doing between our ears when we're praying. I want to end with a, qu a question, and then we'll do a little one-minute exercise. The question is this. Well, I, I know some of you folks, and I'm sure some of our podcasters, um, come out of a word faith background. And I know several here who have, you know, you've you got to do a lot of rethinking, a lot of reprogramming uh, a lot, you know, when you come out of those kind of contexts. But whether you came out of a word faith context or not, ask yourself this question and ask it honestly. Is there any part of you that's holding on to a magical kind of faith? I meet people all the time who otherwise have sound theology, but they can all of a sudden have this magical view of faith. And it's usually about something that is really, really, really super important to them. And they want assurance about it. And I understand that. Like a lady I spoke with a year, year and a half ago, um, she shared with me that she has faith that nothing bad is going to happen to her family, uh, that they're all going to be protected, that the, the house will never be hit by a tornado, they'll never get cancer, they'll never have a car wreck or any other kind of atrocious thing. And she's standing on that, what she thought was a promise, and she's having faith that she has assurance that that will never happen. As though every other variable that could possibly affect her family, including other people's free will, as though that was all now canceled because she's got the formula. I totally understand the desire to have an assurance that nothing bad will happen to your family. Who wouldn't want that? And I encourage, encouraged her, encourage you to have faith in that. But faith isn't a guarantee on outcomes. Faith is the vision that you have in your head that creates a conviction that causes you to move in a certain direction. Um, but if you have this kind of magical faith in any area of your life, I want to encourage you to let that go. Even though it means that now you're going to embrace a world that's scarier than you wanted it to be. Uh, but we don't get to have security blankets. Um, the, the, here's the thing. Probably this person already knew that faith wasn't an assurance because they locked their doors that night. Uh, they wear seatbelts. Uh, they don't put themselves in unnecessary risky situations. They, yeah, so they're already, they already are acting as, as though they believe that there's other variables that affect what comes to pass. I'm just saying get consistent with that. Have faith, but don't think faith is this magical guarantee on things. Um, and, and see, my worry about that is this. If you are trying to have faith, if you think you've got an assurance, a guarantee, God guarantee that nothing bad can happen to your family because you have strong enough faith, well, now you just indicted every family that's ever had tragedy happen because they, mu they must not have had faith. And part of why the book of Job was written is to refute that idea. Job's friends, they're indicting him because they want the security that what happened to him will never happen to them. So they tell themselves, well, if good boys get all God's blessings. The bad boys get all the nasty stuff. So they indict Job for their own security. So much religion does that, doesn't it? It's just, uh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, uh, except the fact that you live in a risky world here, do all the precautions you can, and that's part of what faith is about. You want to have faith for security? Well, have, part of living off that faith will be locking your doors that night and not taking unnecessary risks. But we live in a war zone, folks, and we take hits. 
The, the faith we should have is this, and we sang about it earlier, that, that while the world can let you down, God will never let you down, okay? If, if, you, if you're let down, it's not because of God letting you down. And that he'll be there, he'll be the one thing that, that, that stands strong. When everything else is blown away, when all the world is wasted away, when your experience sends you right into the pit of hell, God's going to be there, praise God. He's the one stable thing we've got, the one sure thing we've got, the run rock. And ultimately, the faith is trusting that, that, that God wins in the end, that his love wins in the end, however tragic things may be here. And they can get tragic. And some of us know that from our firsthand experience. However tragic they get, he wins in the end. And the promise is that it will all be worth it. Have faith in that. See that. Envision that. See how it changes things. All right. Amen. And I, then finally, I, I, I want to just practice this faith for one minute. Think of something right now that you're praying for, something that you're hoping for. You believe it's God's will. Because... Prayer isn't a grab bag, gimme, gimme, turn God into a slot machine thing. It's about carrying out his will on earth as it is in heaven. Surely there's something that you have in your life that you're praying for, a situation. Uh, maybe it's you or maybe it's a loved one or a workplace thing. Just get that in mind right now. And I want you to envision that. As, as start praying about that. Just under your breath, just start praying. Lord, you know, whatever it is, uh, change the situation. And get a picture of what it will look like when that happens. Envision the outcome of that. And enjoy the outcome of that. That's the hypostasis. Make it as vivid. However you do imagination, we're all a bit different, but envision it as concretely as possible, as lifelike as possible. Add motion to it. Add sound to it. See that happening as a result of your prayer. And then notice the conviction that it brings in you. This conviction that it will be so. And that your desire for that. And let that energy... Make you push all the harder. Lord, bring this to pass. Change this heart. Change this similar situation. Heal this person. You see that. You're, that you are doing, that is faith. You probably were doing something like that already because that's, that's just how we think. But there's such a value in knowing what you're doing because now you can be intentional about it and you can intentionally make that picture vivid, which will increase the elen cost about it. That's the strong faith Jesus is talking about. So I have a lady earlier whose who's, prayer is that she would get out of this depression. So she sees herself being joyful uh, and free. And that creates in her this conviction, yes, it is so. And so she's moving in that direction. And folks, that is faith. That is faith. Do I know she's going to be totally delivered of that? I don't know. I don't know that. A lot of variables affect that. But I know she's moving in the right direction. Amen. And this fallen world is all moving in the right direction. It's all you need. It's all we've got. So let's stick with it. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have any uh, prayer need whatsoever, they'll be over by the stairs. And I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. And even if you don't feel like you have much faith about this, maybe you're doing hopeless, let them have faith for you. Because that's a variable that affects what comes to pass. Uh, and if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to consider becoming one. And if you want to have questions about that answered, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus. So as we leave here, can we do it as a people of vision, a people of faith, a people who see the future that God wants and then are pressing towards it based on the strength of our faith, the strength of our conviction. Let's move in the right direction, bringing about God's will on earth as it is in heaven in every area of our life. If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen.